Nuku42 is Rachel Taulele. She is the CEO of Kuno, a whānau-owned food and beverage company that boasts horticulture, seafood and, of course, award-winning wine. Guided by Te Pai Tawhiti, a 500-year plan for success, Rachel is at the helm of a unique business model with kaitiakitanga at its core. With a career that has spanned law, international trade and enterprise, business and governance, you can understand why she is highly sought after in roles like the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council. In this episode, we talk with Rachel about what it means to build an innovative international brand. We talk about wahine in leadership, appropriation and the realities of working for your people. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. Tēnā koe, Rachel. Kia ora. <laughs> Thank you for inviting us to... Now, are we in the tohu whare or are we in the kono whare? We are in the tohu whare yeah. uh, and, and kono is home to tohu. Oh, ka whai. Uh. <laughs> um, this whare that we're currently sitting in has some beautiful bottles of wine on the side of me, but it's a little bit too early for us to pop one open. Give us another hour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, like it is, it is. Yeah. Um, we're down here in the beautiful Te Waipounamu uh, to have a kōrero with you about the amazing mahi that you do um, in an industry that a lot of us know about but probably don't necessarily associate individual people to. Uh, I wanted to start with something that we always start with, which is a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Just like that. Just, Just like straight that. in. <laughs> I can ask you harder questions if you want. No, 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 that's, that's enough. We'll start there. Uh, so who am I and, and where am I from? So um, uh, let's start with where I'm from. So ko ngā te raukawa ki te tonga, ko ngā te rārua, ko ngā te kōta hoki ngā iwi. It's... Um, for most of my life, I've affiliated almost exclusively to to Ngāti Raukawa, and it was only really in the uh, around 2010 that I started discovering my Tetauihu Papa. So you know that's that journey that we all find ourselves on. Uh, but when I reference home, it's probably more in the vicinity of Otaki and Katikumarai, and that's really where uh, my heart is. Uh, but it, but but that space is growing and learning and expanding. Um, you know, as I do, uh, but born and bred in Wellington, I'm the oldest of three, and uh, we still live back in Wellington. So uh, we um, we lived there whole lives in Lower Hutt. Then uh, my husband and I moved to Auckland, and then we went and lived in the States for eight or nine years. Then all the way back again to Petone. and now that's where we are. So it's myself, my husband, and our daughter Lily, who's fifteen. Uh, based oh. in Hatatai now, just great. We love it. Well, you know, I would. I love Wellington, so you know, it was not a hard decision when we left the states to think about where to come back to. What mahi were you doing in the states? Trade commissioner. So when I left university, I actually I, I really thought I was going to be a lawyer because I had a law degree, and that's where. Um, Funnily enough, I got to know uh, Karenza. She, we found each other in the bathroom at the marae, freaking out <laughs> about where we were, and we were like, "It's so full on, and it's so scary, and <laughs> who are we going to talk to?" And then we ended up finding each other in the Farepaku. It was a very glamorous start to the whole thing, uh, and then you know became besties at that point, and and so now it's amazing to be working together with her at Wakatu Incorporation and me and Cornell running the food and beverage arm. But yes, yeah, so I went to university, got a, a law degree. And then came out, thought I'd be a lawyer, but took a job as the team administrator at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. My dad was exporting at the time and he was participating in lots of Māori enterprise events. And I kept gate crashing them because they were really interesting. Mm. And then finally, after gate crashing, like, you know, 10 of them, the manager of the team at the time said to me, oh, look, you're here a lot. Did you maybe just want a job? And I was <laughs> like, this is the slightly ungracious part of my acceptance. I was like, yeah. 
yeah, yeah, I mean, great, thank you. I'm, I mean, I'm going to be a lawyer, but I'd be happy to come in for the moment. And I went in there as the team administrator. I'm pretty sure I was horrible as an administrator. Um, but I learned an infinite amount in a really short amount of time and got introduced to trade. And after studying law, which I loved, and I loved the way it trained my mind, but it was a, there was a, you know, it's a grievance and it's, it's negotiating and litigating your way out of a grievance. And trade for me was really optimistic and positive and you could trade your way into a positive space. And having grown up around business, it really felt like that was probably more a, a natural home for me and just never looked back. So I did a year or two with Trade and Enterprise here in New Zealand. Thought I knew everything because I had a law degree. Turns out I knew pretty much nothing. <laughs> um, but took that and then was posted off to Los Angeles as Trade Commissioner, which at 25 was a big step. Pretty exciting. But we had a great CEO at the time who was a real, um, she was an amazing, amazing woman. And she was one of those people who champions you. So she sees a flicker of potential in people and then she'll put you in a, or she, this is what happened to me anyway. I imagine it happens in other places. Um, she puts you in a sink or swim situation, assuming you'll swim, mm. but there's every chance you might not, but turns out that uh, for the most part you do. And and that was me for sort of eight or nine years helping New Zealand food companies find a market and a partner for their products, whether it's eggs or produce or seafood or meat, in North America. So wow. awesome, amazing. When you're that young, um, it was a mile a minute. You know, when we moved up to the States, California was the fourth largest economy in the world. And so just an amazing time to be there. Amazing country. They certainly have their woes and they've got a, a number of them presently, but um, still an amazing country. Was it difficult to get New Zealand products into that market? Did New Zealand have enough of a reputation at that time to, to not necessarily sell itself, but sell half of itself at least? Uh, I think there was a curiosity about New Zealand. I think people had a vague idea, and I actually don't know if it's very different now than it was, um, oh, I want to say 20 years ago, <laughs> my gosh. Um, but, you know, from, from what it is then where they, they were like, oh, New Zealand, I love New Zealand, it's amazing, I've been to Sydney. And I'm like, hmm, okay, awesome. <laughs> um, but, you know, they they really had no feel for actually where we were and they really had no feel for the kind of people that we were or what we had on offer. I think much as they do today, they think that it's an amazing idea of a place Um we're far away, but, you know, accessible enough. There's not many people who live there and the ones who there, maybe they're not that smart. You know, like I genuinely kind of think that was and maybe even now is their idea. So there's this huge amount of work that we do do and continue to do to get people to understand that, you know, we're a world-class producer of food and beverages. We have incredibly smart people in technology. We have this amazing, beautiful, indigenous economy and peoples that, you know, you cannot find anywhere else. So... Yeah, they kind of knew, they liked the idea of it, but it meant there was loads of opportunity to get them on the same page. Mm. You said that you grew up um, in business, or you grew up around business and your dad was an exporter. What was the business that you grew up around? Where did you learn all of this? Um, so there was a number of businesses. So mum and dad have always had their own businesses and they're like yin and yang, mum and dad. They're really, um, I love them for that fact. So my dad is like this consummate yes man. He's masses of energy, always like you've barely got sentences out of your mouth and he's like, yes, yes, let's do that. He's the eternal optimist. And so he has always created businesses and mum comes in with him and she's much more levelling and much more um, or of the glue that keeps everyone and everything together. So the businesses that he had when we were growing up, uh, he opened Chelsea Records in Petone. So we were kind of like drowning in vinyl when we were kids, and which was, I wish we were now, to be fair. Mm-hmm. I don't even know where they all went, but we, he opened a Chelsea Records store in Petone. Then, and this is the other thing about him, he's kind of an early adopter. So <laughs> he had one of those really massive cell phones, I remember, you know, with the big pack <laughs> that he would carry around places. Um, he started a video store, which turned into sort of three stores called Video Easy, you know, when they started with the beta videos and then they had the VHS videos. Um, then they got eclipsed by DVDs and bits and pieces. But so he had that, that biz. Um, and then he's had a now a family business in paving and, and cobblestone concrete manufacturing for maybe 20, 30, 40 years, maybe? Must be about 40 years. Wow. So I think one of my first jobs was filling sandbags down at the factory, which is, you know super glamorous and (laughs) 
awesome money, crappy ass job, but <laughs> but we got brought up in and around that. So you know what it is. I guess the the what you learn is that it's incredibly hard work to be in mm. business, particularly your own. Uh, the the highs are really high. The lows, there's more urgency to overcome them and you, to, you find in yourself a grit to overcome the really hard parts of your day or your business that you, I don't know if you find at other times. But yeah, that's what I took. When I had my own business, Yellow Brick Road, um, that's what I drew on, that, that you can do it and nothing is insurmountable and you just have to really apply yourselves t- to getting through. Mm. Mm. What yeah. was the inspiration behind Yellow Brick Road? What did you want to achieve with that business? So when we were living in the States and when I was working up there, I saw New Zealand food producers doing an amazing job. They had incredible stories and they worked really hard at manufacturing and fishing and harvesting and processing. And then I saw loads of work going in the market end uh, with the chefs and the retailers to present our New Zealand food products. But between them was a lot of risk and a lot of um, opportunity for those products to, to really diminish in their integrity and, and not, not get to the market in the same way that they left Aotearoa. So I thought after eight or nine years of assisting New Zealand companies to get their product into the hands of others, it was a bit of a, you know, I've been teaching for a little while, now let's do. Mm. And so I love Kaimwana. I thought, that's it, that's me. I'm going to set up a business. I'm going to work with, I'm going to get New Zealand seafood into the US market really quickly and with great story. It's going to be just like that. Um, turns out it's not really just like that. <laughs> After, you know, like nearly a decade of telling companies, if you really want to be successful, you've got to be here in the market. And then I turned around and went home and tried to do the very same thing. So, um, but you know, it, 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 the model in and of itself, that kind of almost um, dock to dish approach from the fishermen through to the chefs in and of itself conceptually was the model that I wanted to follow. And so I started talking to New Zealand chefs about um, what they were sourcing and what they had access to. And it turned out that they were getting really ratty seafood delivered through the back door, skinned and boned fillets uh, wrapped up in a plastic bag and kind of tossed through the back. And then I was telling them about the fish that I had been working with and sending to the States. And I'm like, what? That's amazing. Mm. Can we get some? And I started thinking that, you know, all of the time that I'd been overseas selling this message of us being a world-class producer of food and beverages, which was true, at the same time we were building this tourism industry in New Zealand. And one of the reasons that our tourists were coming to New Zealand was to experience the best version of us. Meanwhile, I'm not sure that our chefs and our, you know, our front line to those consumers where our clay was concerned were, were getting access. And so I decided that I would um, turn the ship and keep the kaimoana that I was sending overseas back in New Zealand for those chefs so they could get, they could have, this sounds crazy now, but they could have live oysters, which they couldn't get access to previously. They could have um, fish with their skin on. They're such little things now, Mm. but, you know, then in 2006 when the business was set up, it was pretty unique. And and it was a fun time because um, it was a start-up, you know, I was young and Māori and entering this fishing world. I don't want to say naively, but I just kind of was like, had set my mind to it because I guess it's the way that I was brought up was to believe that if you if you wanted to, you could. And and what is the worst that could happen if those things don't work out? So anyway, leapt in, created the business, and away we went. And I think the what I love most about it was that we created conversations around responsible fishing that perhaps weren't being had previously. So everyone knew what a free range egg looked like. Everyone knew what happy cows, you know, what that might look and feel like. But we weren't having the conversation around fishing that I think we agitated for when we started supplying chefs with fish within five, six, seven, eight hours of it being caught. That was awesome. Mm. That was amazing. We could tell them who caught your fish and where they caught it and how they caught it. And if you want to go on the boat and check it out and have a chat to the fishermen, you too can do that. So, and what I love now is that actually there's a number of young fishermen who are going down that track, which there's one school of thought that says be great to dominate the market and be able to really own that space. But then my thinking was and remains, if everyone was doing it in this way, everyone would be better. Mm. So that's where, that's where Yellow Brick Road sat. And it still exists. I sold Yellow Brick Road into Kono in 2015. So it came with, it was like a two-for-one deal. <laughs> <laughs> a two-for, a two-for into Kono. Uh, so it's still around, which I love. 
That's actually a, a perfect segue into kono um, and the mahi that you do today. And it's probably mahi that most of us would know you for um, or are familiar seeing your face associated with. And um, different people think kono is different things. So some people think kono is only uh, in the seafood market. And then some people will think kono is only in the wine market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about what kono actually, what what is kono um, and what is your mahi within kono? Yeah, no problem. And you're right, it is because we're really diverse. Mm. Um, you know, it, it takes a little bit of untangling and demystifying. So look at its heart, kono is um, we're the food and beverage arm of Wakatu Incorporation and Wakatu uh, we have 4,000 owner families, all of whom descend from the original land settlers to Te Tauihu back in the 1820s, 1830s, which is a beautiful legacy and story um, to live and be a part of. And my great-great-grandfather was one of those uh, people who undertook the heke from Kafia down through to um, the Marlborough Sounds and then push, kind of pushed over into to Nelson, Golden Bay, Tasman Bay. So I feel a really deep connection to Wakatu, and so to be in the role now as CEO of Kono, which is all the food and beverage activity, um, that's a real privilege. Mm. And in equal parts makes me terrified in a good way, but grateful <laughs> in, in equal parts, you know, because what more could you hope for to be in the, you know, a true whānau business, Māori business, get to be Māori everyday business, and, and sit alongside other parts of the organisation's activities, which are in property and um, kind of functional foods and nutraceuticals in Manaki, which is all about people and culture. So it's awesome, you know, and I love it. I feel like I've loved my public sector background and I've loved my own, having my own business with Yellow Brick Road, but I, it's almost like everything has clicked into place to bring me to this point. Uh, so Kono is uh, a primary industry business essentially. So we have... Uh, horticulture part of Kono. So we grow apples and pears and kiwi fruit and hops. We have uh, a fruit bar business, so Annie's Fruit Bars. We had to like do a big plug, Annie's Fruit Bars. <laughs> Get them at your supermarket now. Plug um, away. Anything that's led by Indigenous wahine is. So we grow in our orchards in Motueka. We've got our Annie's Fruit Bar business. We do have uh, our kaimoana, which is run out of here in Blenheim. So we have green shell mussels, coda and oysters <clears> in that sorry, part coda? of our biz. Yes. Is that, <clears throat> just checking that that's on today's lunch. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> Uh, and then we do have the um, Yellow Brick Road is in there and we have the beverage part of our business so Tohu Wines which is probably the oldest part of the Cornell business about 22 years old Mm. and uh, we make a tutu cider and in the last week we also acquired a craft brewery so now we're in the beer game Wow! so we figured this is how our brains work we're like we grow hops what do you do with hops you make beer (laughs) let's get a brewery (laughs) And so, next minute, we've got a brewery. And it all makes sense. Well, it actually does make sense because the brewery is in Riwaka, which is on our back doorstep, which is literally steps from where we grow our hops. And so now we have this amazing brewer, Simon, and his wife who started that business, and we've got our um, amazing hop manager, Dylan, um, one of our young guys there, and they have become thick of thieves really, really quickly. Mm. So, you know, cool things will happen. Awesome. Mm. What makes Kono so different in this market? Um, the fact, when, I, when I'm looking at it from the outside, I see wahine-led. I see indigenous wahine-led, I should say. Um, I see Māori-owned. Mm. I see really interesting um, ownership model in terms of that, that whakapapa iwi, hapu, whānau. Mm. Um, and... I guess we are quite familiar with the likes of, say, Waikato Tainui owning property. Uh, we might be familiar with Kaitahu um, investing putia and making billions of dollars um, and these sorts of things. What makes Wakatu and Kuno different in this space? That's an awesome question. I love that you asked that question, actually, because you're kind of asking me, like, where's the juice? Like, what's the juice? <laughs> <laughs> what makes it tick? And... There's lots of things. Um, 
So we are not a, an iwi entity, which is a little different from, you know, Kaitahu or Waikato Tainui. Mm. So this is not a, a settlement-oriented um, entity. This was in 1977, Wakatu was formed, and, and the the, the you know land holding whānau at that time decided to collaborate, put their resources together and take shares in the incorporation. Now at the time, I think assets were around $11 million and through sheer bloody-mindedness, the then board at the time literally fought to um, build this incorporation and they fought to have... Um, land returned and they fought to walk on the lands that had been returned and all of the things that you you know now I think sometimes we go out of our way to tell that story over and over and over again so people don't imagine that that it just arrived Mm. and and it was a process of settlement it wasn't it was rightful return or a minuscule part thereof of what should have been the the ownership of the the whānau over all of the years so and that's unique in itself yeah, that it's not. A, it wasn't a settlement. Uh, not, it's, yeah, it's interesting because we did, and you know, and I know you're going to have a chat to Karenza, so she she is, she's a goddess basically. So <laughs> you know, and the, the, probably the smartest person I know, and she has uh, fought for this case, the Wakatu case that we recently won in the Supreme Court, alongside others for a number of years, and so I think that. She's the best person to tell that story, and I guess the part where I pick it up is is in the the space of um, commercial enterprise. And I would describe Cornwall as a commercial entity, as you might find any others. Take TGH as an example. You know, mm. they have commercial entities. So does Ngaitahu. That you know, they have their honey entities and their farming and their fishing and so forth. So I pick up and, and look after a commercial enterprise based on act- activities on Fenua and Moana. Um, but we are driven by social imperatives. So what I think. So you almost double down on the responsibility there. So I'm the same as the. You know, the next winery you might find a Love Block or a Giesen or whomever else, but our responsibilities are vastly different, which I think makes us uh, infinitely better. So the juice comes from the fact that we know and appreciate and love the legacy that has brought us to this point. And the juice comes from the fact that we know what our job is Mm. and we know that our job is to preserve and enhance our taonga for the benefit of present and future generations. So we're here for this minute in time and your responsibility. Like most Māori who are in business and we have this intergenerational perspective, we know what our job is. Like, And you have a split second to get it right and get your perspective in check and make sure you're making decisions um, in the right way, appreciating that you're never alone in those decisions. And as a Māori business, you know, we have a lot of we put a lot of emphasis on collective thought, which is not the same as groupthink. Groupthink is bad. <laughs> collective thought is Māori. <laughs> so the two are different. And, the, and collective thought is makes you so strong, I think, in your ability to make sound judgments, sound decisions. And so that's where the, that's the difference. And I think in the world market, because we take all of that horticulture and seafood and wine and we... Um, the difference, I guess, with our business and maybe some other entities is that we are vertically integrated. So we, there are farms and our orchards and we harvest and catch and process and then we package and brand and we export and sell ourselves. So it no, or there's not a lot of time when that product is out of our hands. So there's all this care mm-hmm. and all this story that's wrapped around the whole way. And we are unashamedly and wildly proud of being Māori. Like that's our story and that is our chance to share a little bit of ourselves with the world through that. So I think that when Tohu started 22 years ago, I think people were like, what? Like Māoris and what? Like what? <laughs> you, you guys are doing what? And so, you know, we have these beautiful labels that you can see on that bottle that's on mm. the shelf there um, that Sandy Ads had produced and they're yeah. gorgeous um, but I think they might have almost freaked the domestic market out. So we became pretty quickly like globally hot and locally not. But that has turned on its head, I think, as you've seen more mainstream New Zealand really attaching themselves or aspiring to associate themselves with Māori values, words, mm. concepts, ideas. Um, this is a version of that. 
Mm. You've been in this role for five years? Yeah. What has been one of your proudest moments? Or proudest I, achievements? Yeah, <clears throat> it's a good question. <laughs> it's I like, to ask I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you one of my proudest moments actually was being able to defend our team. Uh, um, you know, we had an incident where, you know, our team were being set upon by some of the local community and, and my ability to wade in and stand up really strongly and, and, and remove that person from their environment, mm. uh, remove any element of, um, you know, racism, overt racism for them. I was really, it was really early on in my role, but you know in your pocket what's right and wrong and, and you know what your responsibility is and part of the responsibility, I think, in my role is to protect uh, my people. And, and so that I was really um, confounded by initially that anyone would be like that and speak like that and be so hateful. And that's probably, in retrospect, really naive because I'd been bouncing around a yellow brick road for 10 years <laughs> and we like selling fish and talking to chefs. And, you know, whilst I was Māori and I was in business, I, it wasn't a Māori business and that is an important distinction for, you know, anyone. Mm. But this is so categorically Māori business and we think and move and behave in ways that are demonstrably Māori. That um, so there was a lot that was new to me at the time. But yeah, seeing somebody react in a in a negative and racist way to that, I was like, what? Hang on a minute. <laughs> you have to get back to base values of right and wrong. So I was really um, proud of being able to stand up and have have continued to do so over the years. Um, but that's a really proud moment, I think. And it wasn't just me. I'm proud of the fact that it took a split second for um, the others around me to recognise that behaviour and mm. cut it off too. Um, and I guess recently, through COVID, I have been like incredibly humbled by my team's ability to stand up. You know, like when we went into um, the first week of COVID and lockdown level four, there were, the messaging was stay at home or die basically. Mm. And in the same breath, we were saying to three or 400 people, but maybe if you guys could go to work, that'd be awesome. <laughs> you know, like, actually you'll be fine. Like, you know, what are you in that orchard or... Just don't touch too many other people while you're out there. <laughs> where you're all up in each other's grill all the time. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that that was a really scary period and to have to make decisions because the decision was, do you mothball the business and just close it down for the next however many weeks this is going to go on for or do you work out a way that we can keep everyone safe and employed and their livelihoods mm. secure? So we went down the latter route and leadership showed itself in places that you might expect it, you know, people that you know have got the capabilities, but then the ones that you don't know as well were the ones who were the most surprising, most humbling, most, you know, inspiring because they stood up and they created an environment where they looked after each other and out for each other. Um, they created systems and processes that kept them safe and they just went for it, you know. They just really appreciated that um, privilege of being an essential business and being mm. able to go to work and they were still freaked out like everyone was freaked out all the time um, but they did it and I was like man because you know lockdown in my kitchen in Wellington with my egg boots on like it was frustrating but it wasn't life-threatening yeah. <laughs> uh, it might have been for the rest of my whanos I kept <laughs> banishing them from the room but but the people who were in and out of you know in their cars on the roads when no one else was and it's pretty. It's a crazy, crazy time, and so they stood up and they behaved in a way. I was like, "Man, guys are awesome. They're just amazing." You, um, you're a CE, CEO. Sorry, I've got an O at the, at the end of it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You're a CEO, and there are not a lot of wahine who hold that position, let alone Indigenous wahine that hold that position in Aotearoa. What do you, why do you think that is and what do you think needs to change in order for us to see more leaders at the level that you're at? Mm, I wish we did. It's, it is, it's, um, we got listed in this um, report not long ago, a few years ago, I think it was like 100 of the top F&B companies in New Zealand and we were in there, we were awesome. You know, it was great to see Māori businesses in there, not specifically mm. us, but Māori businesses generally. And then I was looking through the names as well, I was like, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, there's like, I don't know, four, and there was no Māori woman in there. Wow. And so you think, exactly as you said, like what needs to change in order for that to happen? And a number of things, not least of which is um, for, for me, uh, I always think that when you are in those positions of influence, then that carries responsibility. And part of that responsibility is to remain visible mm. because if you can, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, it's a bit of a bump sticker, but it's, you know, if you can <laughs> see it, you can be it. Um, but I do think the work that I do with young women, the very fact of seeing someone who looks or feels like them is incredibly liberating because they're like, oh, for you, you know, I'm, I'm not, there is, I can be this person, I can be authentically me and get to the places that I wish to be. And so things that need to change are, I think that women who are in our positions need to create different spaces, places, ways of doing business that are more inclusive and open and accepting of every kind of people. Mm. But um, if we're speaking about women specifically, you know, allow for the fact and celebrate the fact that the thinking is different. The, the way we do it is different and it's beautiful for that effect. And yep, you can go into a boardroom and foot it in the in the Western male way that those situations unfold. That's fine. It's actually not the best version of me. And also, why would you? I know. Because that doesn't well, work. I'll tell, you why, <laughs> no, but I'll tell you what you do is because when you're new to it, you don't know and you you're still finding your feet and you're working out your voice mm. in that environment and you're working out the value of your voice in that environment and you can't simply, you can't blitz them with you because it won't land. And so it's a game of strategy where you have to understand the, the points of inflection where you can have that influence. And I think you're always working that out and working out how to insert yourself. So, you know, what are your mic drop moments? Because they're the ones that count. But a constant barrage of voice it tends to... I don't know, I think in those, you know, those boardroom environments, in almost every board I sit on, I'm the only uh, woman and certainly the only Māori, certainly the only Māori woman. <laughs> you really want to get down to it. So you're like, you're, you're this unicorn. And I talked to these young women the other day about, you know, embrace it and be the unicorn. So when you're the unicorn, you're this rare mythical being and one thing is not like the other. Mm. And it's super... Um, the idea of folding and retreating is really attractive a lot of the times because it's exhausting to push yourself into foreign environments. But if you can summon that strength and if you can hold on to that moment, um, it's your moment to shine because half the battle of being heard is being seen. And when you're that unicorn, when you're the only Māori woman at a table, like you better use that wisely mm -hmm. and use that moment and think about what mic are you going to drop and when are you going to do it because they don't show themselves all the time, those opportunities. Do we have enough Māori women standing up for these jobs and putting their hands up for them? Or not just Māori women, Māori women, Pacifica women, other Indigenous women? No, I don't, we don't, because if the ones of us who are doing it, it's a shallow, it feels like a shallow pool mm. because you're called on again and again in different environments to, to, to perform the same role, different table. So, but, but I don't think the pool is actually that shallow. It's just by the definition that we're giving of what makes a capable participant is too, too narrow it, and it's still, it's still rooted in um, a very Western definition. Mm. And so I think that if we could work to expand the definition of what makes you capable to participate in that project, that program, that business, that role, then you'd start really seeing things shift and move and change in a much better way, much healthier way. But it's because you don't look and feel like the balance that we're missing. You know, we're MIA from mm. the conversation. And I think that what I see now is a lot of Māori women who are actively rejecting invitations to participate because they're being extended on the basis of them being that Māori woman. That's rubbish. You know, I think... There's a time when you have to accept those opportunities because you. So I do believe it's often better to be inside the tent because you can participate in the conversation that is to be outside it. But box ticking is just bullshit. <laughs> you know, it's tiresome. 
You're allowed to say that louder yeah, if you ask. Building up, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I was thinking back to that racist story. And I was like, I really want to tell the whole story, but it's you know, it is what it is. It's just you know, everyone's got a racist story. They just all have different people, different names, different places, but they all start and end with a racist. Mm. So you know, there's no need to go back to that. But it's yeah, I think. It is a very interesting time for Māori women in leadership where do you accept those invitations and get in on the conversation so you can um, influence from the inside and you have to be pretty strong to do that because invariably you're the only one. Or do you reject them and say, actually, we're just going to have our own conversation over here. It's not going to look like that, but I think ultimately you're going to want to be a part of it. Mm. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not an either or, maybe it's an and and. Yeah, maybe it is both. I raise the question because I think about how um, I think about what our world looks like today. I think about what our country looks like today, and I think about the systems that fail us um, from a social and environmental perspective. But I also think how much um, industry and business and primary industry can have influence over those sorts of yeah. things. And if we have uh, more Indigenous women leading in these spaces, we start seeing more of these values uplifted um, and raised and discussed and adhered to. And, mm. you know, we talked a little bit earlier about Indigenous values and the importance of Indigenous values in the mahi that you do. Um, and I say it in every bloody thing I say or write or, you know, <laughs> the fact that Indigenous systems and values are the blueprint to our well-being. Yeah. And so when we have Indigenous women who, I say, are so godly, because we are born of this earth, mm. um, <laughs> so we can yeah. make such change, um, that I just, I want to see more. Mm. I want to see more wahine. I want more wahine standing up, but I also want more wahine in leadership positions championing others and bringing them up, and that's not to say they're not, but, you know, just want to see more of it faster because I don't want to die before. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to die and it doesn't happen. I want to see it in my time. <laughs> yeah, and it's a really... It, it, sometimes I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, when you accept those opportunities to participate in conversations with people, mm. oftentimes whose values totally don't align with your own, I do think that we are pretty hard on each other when we do then... Um, you know, you get flack for it. So so we were talking about the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council and, you know, when that came up, I looked at it and, or oh, initially I had like a minor, like, vomit moment. I was like, oh, my God, what? what? <laughs> Actually, what happened is I was at the basketball and my cell phone went and I was watching my daughter and it was Chris Luxon on the phone and I was annoyed and I was answering it. It was like a timeout or something and I went, Kilda. And he goes, oh, oh, Kilda, actually, it's Chris Lexon here. And I was like, oh, 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 wait, hang on a minute, hello. <laughs> Thinking, oh, what are you calling about? <laughs> Let me just change my tone yeah. for a second. Wait, I've just put my other voice on, oh, Kilda. <laughs> yep. Um, anyway, so, you know, you get invited to go on these things and participate. But, you know, there, there is, and you hear it, people going, um, you're like a, you're a supporter or you're a, um, you know, you want that bandwagon or, you know, I didn't know that you were a, a Labourite or, you know, that you were a sort of, sort of sycophant to, to the Prime Minister. And it's like, hey, that's not what it's about. Like, why, on what planet would you mm. judge somebody's participation in a conversation around economic recovery for this country? That's not a bipartisan issue. That, like, that is a national conversation. And I think to have, to be able to participate in that is a really positive thing. And so... And to have an Indigenous wahine feed into that, mm. um, just to clarify that we were talking about it before we hit record. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> okay, so, so you were a member of the Prime Minister's Business Advisory oh. Council. <laughs> uh, oh, um, yeah. But to have an Indigenous wahine voice in that, um, when we're talking about the recovery is huge because you represent a community that would otherwise not have a voice at the table. Yeah, and that's patently, it, it was clear when we sat around the table. So initially the group was brought together, there's 13 people, um, all different people who have, you know, huge spheres of influence, either from Frontera or New Zealand Steel or Zero or, you know, Bunnings, Westpac, um, Pungle Productions <laughs> and Kono, you know, so, you know, a couple of those things were not like the other. Um, but we were there for a very specific reason, which was that our, our views and our background and our thinking and our hardwiring is so profoundly different from the balance. And, and I think what was interesting about that is that we came up with a recommendation around um, what would knit together 
program services, um, supercharging of the Māori economy that we thought was amazing. Now, it got knocked down a couple of times, but it doesn't matter because, you know, Māori's are built for that kind of rejection. <laughs> and we're mm. just like, oh, okay, so we go again and we go again and we go again and we go again. And you've got to be so in love with the the idea of wanting to do good for your people that you'll just withstand most knocks in the process because that's that's about survival and frankly we wouldn't even be here if we weren't built for survival. Mm. Um, I think we've had a time of patience and now we're in a time of impatience which is a good thing and so what do you do with all that? And so getting around that table and being able to converse with um, captains of industry in their own spheres whilst kind of scary you know, and nerve-wracking, after a couple of conversations, you quickly realise that actually you have so much of what is needed Mm. and then you have an internal conflict of, like, how much do you share? You're like, oh, well, hang on a minute. No, you can't be a kaitiaki. (laughs) Because we're the kaitiaki. Like, you can be a custodian, but you can't be a kaitiaki. And it's, and it's how much do you share, this is the other interesting whakaro around that, is how much do you share that then gets traction, that then other people get credit for, mm-hmm. and do you, um, and it's not about the credit, it's more so about do you continue to share because it's going to be for the greater good, or do you limit what you share because actually it then becomes owned by the greater, uh-huh. the, yeah, it gets owned by the other. But it also is for the greater good. It's like that fine balance between... Yeah, I had a conversation. Um, <laughs> the solutions of all the world's problems that sit with Indigenous thinking. <laughs> yeah, and I think sometimes the answers just, um, are different depending on who you're talking to. <laughs> and so I had a conversation with somebody uh, not long ago about the wine industry and, and um, it was an English woman and and she was confused at continually hearing the word Tūranga Waiwai used in the, in the wider industry. Like, And what did I think about that? And I was like... You know, my tendency is towards kind of optimism and love and light and, you know, I think that there's an, you know, and I danced around the idea that there was a, um, if people are assuming that as their word, they are mistaken because it is not. But the idea of having a place of, that you can call home and that you attach to, conceptually or philosophically, absolutely. You know, and if you wish to use Tūranga Waiwai, in that sense for yourself uh, with some education and listening and understanding how you might be using that word, then we might get to that place where you can have a better understanding. But then also I wouldn't ever want to give people the impression that that is, that is a, that a word that people can appropriate because as people become more familiar with ideas and values and concepts, that invariably does lead to appropriation. And I think that at the moment we are doing double time to protect ideas, concepts, images, you know, things that are just 100% Māori yeah. and cannot, should not, and and I object to, you know, them being objectified but also appropriated at the same time because that's incredibly disrespectful. You know, we would never assume a, in the wine, I think I made the uh, comparison to the word te awa. you know, that's it's not our word. We can use it. I understand the concept of it, but it's not our word. Mm. So I wouldn't, you know, endeavour to own it. So I do find myself oftentimes in conversations about how do I feel about, you know, the values of Māori being, you know, used in businesses these days. I'm like, well... And I find so mm. many more, um, and it might just be because we're we're becoming much more aware of appropriation happening um, and the power of social media helps... <laughs> helps identify appropriators quite quickly. Mm. But um, in the food and beverage industry, most recently in the last, you know, six to 12 months, we've seen lots of businesses being pulled up mm. on using Te Reo Māori uh, names for their products or for their business. Would the impression or would their, their personal understanding that that name reflects our New Zealand history? Mm. It reflects our collective fuck up our collective identity as people from Aotearoa. And this is where that kōrero around, um, you know, kapahaka, ingoa Māori, 
koru. <laughs> These um, very common identifiers of Aotearoa um, where non-Māori claim ownership to. And it's an interesting conversation because it's like, well, actually, no, it's still Māori. Mm. Um, and you are part of Aotearoa society and culture, but it doesn't belong to you. Yeah. You've got to do the work, I think. Mm. And, and you know, and there are, I love that there are some total warriors out there, you know, our social media warriors like Damaris. <laughs> like she's out there just like slaying people left, right, and centre, which I love. And, you know, and so, but, but and we've had conversations about it and, and I think that it's not always by default wrong. You know, it can't be otherwise. We, we'll, I think we'll tighten ourselves into a circle where we're just not ever talking to anyone. Mm. But I think that there are ways and ways for people to engage with that. That, that is, There are right ways and there are wrong ways like most things in life. And I think that if you do the work, and do the work just doesn't mean asking your Māori mates, does this make sense? It, like genuinely do the work if you want to um, use a te reo in your mm. restaurant name or product. But then my point about or thinking about a lot of that is um, why would you? Is that the very best representation of you as a person? Uh, and if it is, awesome, then articulate that. Mm. But really think deeply about whether or not te reo in any form or, or a Māori image or whatever it might be, is that really the most authentic version of you? And if you're not Māori, it would be, you'd have to be pretty convincing in that yeah. argument, you know, so. And you actually think... People who have a really good understanding of their place in that space, whether they be Māori or non-Māori, when you have a really good understanding of what te reo Māori moana tikanga is mm. and you have a really good understanding of, around what appropriation is, you actually make the right decisions yeah. because you innately have that understanding. You don't have to ask, yeah. is this right or is this wrong? Because when you've done the work to gain the understanding, mm. you just go, oh... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing about, you know, you come all the way back to values and the, what's the difference, I guess, with, with Kono and well, Wakatu and other businesses mm. is that I think that we are so in love with our values and we, that we just live by them. And it makes everything really easy. Really hard decisions are so easy. They are a piece of cake, you know. So I think that... Um, and, and, and we didn't create them. We are the beneficiaries of people who have done that for us and the, and we've been built in this way and then the expectations of us are sky high as they should be and that's 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 the pressure mm. to to live up to those who have come before us either by their thinking or their actions or, I mean, Eva Rickard was one of our first board members. I mean, hello, if you, I don't want, I'm not going to stuff that up. <laughs> you know, like, she set us on a course. I'm like, I'm not going to be that one. They'd be like, oh, really? I mean, when Rachel, like, cocked it all up, you know, Eva's work, you know. <laughs> so you're not, you're just not going to. Mm. It's it's too great. And, and the feeling you get from, you know, the good work that you can do is sort of indescribable and it's the little things that it's not the awards it's not those are great and the team works really hard for them and and I think they validate that hard work in 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 a lot of ways but it's the smaller things I think when um you know that you've won if it's you know we still have Uncle Rory Stafford who's on our board and you know when he gives you the nod it's like ah yes (laughs) we did it yes doesn't matter if there are 50 awards sitting in this room that nah. we're currently sitting in, <laughs> more actually. Um, when you, you know, when Uncle gives you the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or he gives you the crack out when you turn up to a board meeting, you go, we've got this new product, it's amazing. You know, it's like a dehydrated muscle, and he's like, yeah, we were doing that 50 years ago. And it's like, oh, damn it. You know, you don't, don't need focus groups, don't need market research. He's like, it's one person. Stop marketing it as a new thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, thinking about our generations to come and you just had a great corridor about legacies and the legacies that people have left before you and the legacy that you yourself are creating and leaving. Um, you do some mahi with Young Enterprise Trust and that is all about growing mm. our next generation into business, into spaces like these. Um, tell me a little bit about that mahi and, and why you're involved well, about 4,000 years ago, I did Young Enterprise. <laughs> that was the starting point. 
And I think, you know, which actually might have been my little first foray into business, uh, and which I really loved it. She was good. We had a really stink product, but it was good fun. Um, <laughs> um, so anyway, I had done it a number of years ago and then was approached to jump on the trust and, and participate as a trustee, which, and i got to say, is one of my favourite things to do. I get such buzz out of the kids and the kids are so energetic and they're solving problems, which I think a huge challenge with businesses and people setting up businesses now is that they're actually not solving the problems. And I think if you're going to create a business, like find a problem, solve a problem, where my business. Mm. So the kids go out of their way to identify ills, problems, challenges in the world, and then they provide a solution. But they're energetic and they're thinking entrepreneurially. Um, they build muscles about and around financial literacy. They build ideas of um, collective action. So th- th- there's a lot masked by, you know, create a business and by the end of the year we'll let you know how you go. My most recent um, and deeper love for it is that a couple of years ago we started Angatahi Challenges because we weren't getting the Māori kids coming through the programme, which was a real bummer because when they did come through, they were a really hard case. They had really... Amazing solutions, and they also had though different problems they were solving. And so we thought, well, how are we going to get more kids in the program? Well, let's have something more, more bespoke for Māori. So we created different kinds of programs. They run really differently. You know, three days usually is the you might have these challenges where um, non-Māori come, kids come in, and the first day they're literally there five minutes. They form their teams. They got their ideas. They're away. Well, our kids come in and they have a day of fuck off and so. Mm. And beyond that, though, then they're into warp speed in terms of what they're doing and, you know, how good they are at it. And so we have more and more of them coming through. And I think what I love seeing is that the kids come in, they're not quite sure why they've been forced to come along to the, to the challenges <laughs> sometimes. They're like, oh, well, you know, our teacher said we'd come. Um, but they get there, they understand that uh, what business is, which is so simple, you know, you make something, you sell something, you make something. Mm. That's all businesses and anyone can do it and you can change lives through it and it's entirely within the realms of possibility for them. And so I think they leave, um, not reprogram because that's overestimating what happens in three days, but there's a little seed of um, a different kind of potential for them and that's why I love doing Young Enterprises, just to give the kids insight into what's possible. I think about... I think about rangatahi and I think about um, learning business now, some learning business tools and learning financial literacy tools. And then I think about many wahine that I meet today, sometimes when I look in the mirror, um, <laughs> who find it really difficult to talk about um, money and profit. And so when running a business, because it's such a difficult conversation to have or, or a different corridor to, you know, think about your own value or the, mm. your, the value of your product, um, it actually can make make and break businesses. And I know that there are lots of wahine who will be listening to this podcast um, who are probably sitting at home going, yep, don't know how to price myself or don't know how to price mm. my mahi or don't know how to whatever. My partai isn't how much <laughs> how much are these women be ch- um, <laughs> putting on their businesses, not that. Yeah. It's more so you, you know, you run this, you run this business. Um, my partai is you run this business this business still has to make money. Um, it has shareholders that <laughs> you do <laughs> that it makes money, and that comes with some confidence in being able to um, run a, bus- a profitable business. Do you have some basic advice um, before we get into the the last bit of our corridor? Do you have some basic advice for wahine that are listening who might just want a little bit more confidence around? business and in particular the money side of business and mm. having the confidence in selling yourself, selling your product and being okay with that. Yeah. When I had Yellow Brick Road, I wish that I had had the advice that I might give them now <laughs> because I was the same. You go into the business and you go, yeah, what's like a margin or market? I don't know, like who knows? All of, all of those quite... Um, and the scheme of things, straightforward considerations when you're creating a business. I think that um, 
Actually, because I had an accountant who's, you know, who kind of loved to say to me, oh, it's, it, it, drawings are just a line entry. And drawings are, you know, when you take money from the business and and it's kind of, at the end of the day, um, it, a substitute for salary almost because most people when they're in their own business are underpaying themselves and then they kind of borrow money from the business which then becomes a drawing which at some point you have to pay back but I, that wasn't made entirely clear to me at the outset so when I did sell my business I was like well that's one mighty line entry <laughs> at the end of the day you know for what you had to pay back into a business but I think that there are some places that you can go to um, that provide very straightforward learnings about the fundamentals of business. Now, you don't have to do a, a three-year, two, even a 12-month degree in any of those sorts of things, but I think short courses that help you with the fundamentals of pricing and um, accounting, how to read your balance sheet, that is the most important part of running your business is knowing, knowing how your numbers should appear, how knowing where you should be spending your money how you should be marking up your services, what you can expense, all of the sorts of little quite dull details but really, really important because you can get just twisted inside out on, on on what happens there. So whether it's chambers of commerce or um, politics or, you know, university courses or whatever they might be, there are places that can provide you very orthodox advice around what it is to set up a business and the fundamentals primarily of money. But in saying that, what I think that we, and this is the luxury you get into when you're in a bigger organisation, is we're not just focused, although it's actually not even specific to a big business, I think this applies to small as well. Um, just focusing solely on the money won't be quite as rewarding as you might imagine. So mm-hmm. I think if you only ever measure yourself on Putia, it's a bit of a soulless existence. And so we have five things that we measure ourselves on. So Putia is one of them. Papa Whenua is another. Um so there are five things and every single one of them is as important as the other. So not one is more important. And I think that to get that balance of what's important to you in your business, so at the outset, 100% you've got to make money. If you're not making money in your business, it's a different kind of outfit. It might be non-profit, albeit that non-profits actually have to make money in order to do the good work mm. that they do do. But you're more than a hobby, but you're going to be less than a business because it's not self-sustaining. So money is 100% important. But then there will be other things that are really important to you as somebody who's creating a business. And work out what they are from the get-go. Don't make it too long a list, otherwise you'll you know never satisfy it. Mm. But work out, what are you, are you trying to get more time in your life? Are you trying to um, educate people? Are you trying to... Um, you know, create a movement. Like, what are the things you're trying to do with your business? And money will be part of that. Get that straight. But that's probably the easy part in the scheme of things. Um, yeah, so I think that planning and thinking about the point of the exercise is probably the starting point. Mm. You've already mentioned some um, amazing wahine in our corridor today, but who is an Indigenous wahine that inspires you or has inspired you on your journey? My grandmother, my namesake actually, she really inspires me. So Rakira, she's, she um, grew up in Otaki. She grew up at the, the Pai actually, Katiku. Um, she inspires me because she was a chameleon of sorts. Mm-hmm. So she married my grandfather's Pakia. She married him. Um, moved to the city, got city-fired. We thought she never even spoke Māori. <laughs> she was like, we were like, I said to my auntie that I'm like, man, how come like, Queen never spoke Māori? She's like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, I never heard her. Um, but I think she she had this way of kind of delineating her life and, and, and when she was at home, she was this person and when she wasn't, she was the other. So she could um, assimilate but still maintain herself. Mm. And so so she inspires me. I I you know, take a lot from her. In fact, all the women in my family, all the way through to my daughter, you know, she's she's amazingly clear in her thinking and she is very malleable. I think you always have to have people around you who who, who do that for you. And I, recently, and this is not in the Manawahine space, but recently I've been thinking a lot about my in-laws who are Samoan and, and they are wildly inspiring. You know, mm. they both migrated to... Aotearoa from Samoa at different times 
their commitment to each other is profound. Their commitment to God, and I'm not a very religious person at all, but they they really, really are, and it's their thing. Uh, but their commitment to Fano and the sacrifice that they have shown in their life and to the simplicity of what it is to be happy. Mm. And that, I think, I've been thinking a lot about. I don't know what's going on that I would be doing that, but, you know, the, as I say, the simplicity of their lives and the happiness that they find in that is really inspiring. Mm. So we've come to our final question, uh, which is what is your hope for the future of Indigenous women? My hope is that that we live up to our potential. I think our potential is infinite, you know, to love and support and achieve and um, care for and grow and, you know, all of the things that you know as an Indigenous woman and, and that I know is inside of us. And just to let ourselves breathe and be and release all of that. Mm. And then I think that we really start to come into our potential as Māori women. Thank you for your kōrero today. Um, it has been a beautiful day down here in Te Tawihu. And I can just see the snow peak of the maunga out the window. It's just making me kind of go, why am I going home tomorrow? <laughs> um, but thank you very much for, for the kōrero and thank you for the mahi that you do. You're a really inspiring leader and I hope that we have more wahine who are inspired by you who um, stand up for <laughs> lots oh, of these roles. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and just for anyone listening, I'm really excited that after this I may or may not be going to have some coda and some oysters and some apples from the orchard and possibly some hops. <laughs> <laughs> All of that, only none of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're not <queen. laughs>